Welcome to the Future of Coding. Today I have Joe Cohen on the podcast. So Joe is originally from Brooklyn, New York. He studied at Wharton, which uh, actually makes us both University of Pennsylvania dropouts. Joe's first company was called Lore, and it was in the education space. And he's currently building a company called Universe, which we're going to hear all about today. Uh, Joe, thanks so much for joining me. I'm really excited to be here. You've gone through a number of really interesting pivots with Universe which I'm excited to have us walk you through in a minute. But before we, we get to that, um, could you explain a bit about what you initially set out to accomplish with this company? Sure. Uh, I started Universe because uh, I became increasingly convinced and passionate uh, about um, making a tool that allows everybody to create the internet. Uh, as the internet creeps into our lives more and more, it, it sort of influences every function of society. Um, the people who get to create it often are creating the world around us. And that world is only as interesting as the diversity of uh, its shapers. And so, oh, oh, five or so years ago, I started thinking about uh, how we could design tools that allow people to create the web. Um, and that's taken on many different forms. It's a very ambiguous and sort of uh, broad mandate. But at the high level, uh, the mission is to empower uh, all kinds of folks to create the world around us online. Uh, and so, so that's sort of, that's sort of the, the, the mission. Uh, as you may have guessed, you have the honor of being the first non-technical guest on the show. I'd be curious to think to hear about how that perspective um, affects running a company like Universe, which, from my perspective, is is like a programming languages company. Yeah, it's funny that you say that. Uh, it's funny that you consider us a programming language company. I, I don't think about it that way, and I don't I sort of stay away from that kind of language because a my imposter syndrome kicks in. Um, you know, like you said, I'm not a programmer. And B, uh, I, I do think that it's intimidating uh, to, to others um, and to our users. And so I, I think there are uh, underlying sort of factors at play that, that would warrant us being called a programming language, but I'll let you, I'll let you call it that. Um, yeah, I'm not technical. I'm not a programmer. I don't write code, and I don't like writing code. Um, with that said, I've been on the Internet since I'm 10 years old. Uh, and the internet totally changed my life. I grew up in a sort of conservative Jewish community, and um, my world was really small, but getting online uh, really opened me up to the world, and uh, I soon started to create websites and uh, just engage with other people and my interests online, and it completely broadened my perspective. And um, and ever since I've started using the internet, I've, I've sort of wanted to create a tool like Universe uh, in that I, want, I wanted to make a tool that made creating the internet as easy as browsing or using the internet. And I realized that as technology becomes more abstracted, more useful to everybody, uh, which has been the progression since the, the invention of the personal computer, what happens is that 
the domain of creating in that environment also becomes more democratic. So the media and the general narrative tends to concentrate on the sort of utilization of these tools, right? We use um, we use Excel, we use these programs, but not necessarily the creation of them. But the reality is that as we hit these uh, these sort of user interface uh, frontiers, we also uh, have the opportunity to make the creation tools themselves more human and more democratic. And I think that with the, I think that the phone uh, was far and away the biggest leap in usability from a usage perspective, and thus presents an opportunity to do the same thing when we think of creating. Uh, but I think to date has still been rather limited. Um, and so for us, we think about how we can make the phone something that everybody can use to uh, to create the internet. Um, and we imagine a web that is um, more, that, that like I said, represents all kinds of people, whether that's artists, teachers, small business owners, people who don't use a computer, um, but engage with the world, add something to the world. Uh, we think that an internet that represents those people, that is created by those people, is a more interesting and a more powerful internet. And I think that if you look at tools like Twitter, we've seen the ramifications of what happens when you allow everybody to write 140 characters on the internet. I don't think we can even fathom what happens when you allow everybody to create the web itself, right? And so I think that if, if, if we can make that happen, we'll unlock a, a wave of creativity uh, on a scale that, that we, we can't currently imagine. Um, I, I, Steve, I could also talk a little bit more in terms of the question about uh, about why why this uh, sort of personalizing it a little bit. So, okay. um, in, in a sense, because the question was how, how does my not being technical uh, play into it? I, I, I think that um, again, like my experience here as a non-technical person guides guides the way I look at it. On the one hand, I'm a technologist. I, I keep up with technology. I design technology. Uh, on the other hand, I try to retain the perspective of someone who uh, is, is not a technologist, whose life doesn't revolve around technology, but uh, around some other interest or passion. And what's changed is that because computing has proliferated in our lives, non-technical people, people or, or non-technologists non are able to recognize and identify what they want to make with software in a way that wasn't ever possible before. So for example, on Universe, we have people creating what we think of in the UI world as navigation, but they don't have uh, parlance for it. They just, they, they just sort of make it themselves. There's sort of this vernacular design happening. And that's a really cool thing. And why do they want to do that? Well, they want to do it because they've seen a website that does something similar. And so I really believe in this pattern of creation where as humans we see the world around us and we want to make things that are similar to what we see. And maybe push a little bit further, but we're anchored in the present. Because the web has proliferated so much, 
there are really good patterns that are sort of universally understood for what we can do with these technologies. And because of that, there's a wide awareness of uh, the, the, the ability for people to create this stuff, and they want it. Do you see what I'm saying? Like if you see an online store, you know if you sell stuff in the real world that you want an online store. You don't need to invent an online store because the notion of an online store is in, it's, it's in the periphery. And so you just have to say, I want that which is a much easier process than a zero to one authorship. I definitely know what you mean. I, th I see the, I guess like the, the inverse of this when I teach uh, children to code and they have no idea what, what's even possible to make, what's even possible for someone like them to make with a computer and they just look at me blankly. And then after they make their first few games, they're like, oh, now I get it. And then they can kind of go, once they get a sense of what's possible, they can kind of go from there. And so, so I guess what you're saying is th that the internet has pervaded our lives so thoroughly that every person kind of has a sense of what's possible to make on the internet. Yeah, because like the way I look at it is like, you know, if you think of the websites and the apps that we use as the architecture, the architecture of the internet, there, this world is now is sort of developed enough that we have patterns. We have our ideas of what a building is, what a storefront is, what a street is. Um, and we know enough as regular internet users to say, oh, I want to put up a store here. I want to, uh, you know, I want to uh, put up a, a building there. I want to put up a wall. I want to paint it red. Like we have these concepts. Just like it would be fairly easy for a layperson to have an idea for a store and think and dream up a store. Like I, I think we, we sort of have that now on the internet. So I guess what you're saying um is that as someone who, as a non-technical person, for, for you it's very clear what the sorts of things that non-technical people would want to do with computers uh, because because it's the fabric, because we all interact with them all the time. Is that what you're getting at? Yeah, and I'll say like earlier in my career, um, I really felt a pressure to learn to code and, and sort of become a, a programmer. And, you know, like I can write code I'm very, you know, I'm not, I'm not good at it, um, and and uh, you would not want me writing your your code, but I felt this sort of pressure um, over the years, and at some point I realized that I actually don't enjoy thinking um, in code. I don't enjoy writing code. I don't enjoy it. it. Doesn't make me happy, and I I only imagine that that's actually true for perhaps most people, and that it's a very specific modality of expression. Um, and so I actually changed my attitude on it, which was to, to really lean into the fact that this is not how my brain works. This is not what environment I thrive in. And to say, oh, can we create an environment that people like me can really, can really excel um, in and, and, and sort of really push? And could we build a medium that was perhaps at some point as expressive as code, but in a way that um, was more accessible. Totally. You, you, you definitely have my agreement that the coding we have now is, is not humane. And for most people, you know, some people would even argue for all people, it's definitely not the most fluent medium for us to think in. Uh, given that you're kind of like leaning into your, your dislike of it, I'd be curious to know if, if you've got, kind of gone deeper into like what particular things about it uh, don't jive with you. Well, I mean, 
again, so here my, my knowledge is limited, uh, but what I'd say is I think text is a medium. I love reading. I love writing. I love, I love text. But as um, a creative medium, as a generative reading a medium for me, it doesn't, um, doesn't stimulate me. I'm, I find it very hard to focus uh, on a task when it is a linear document. Um, mm. and, and keeping track of what's happening in my mind that a visual representation is very difficult to do. Yeah, that's a great I, I criticism. Yeah. yeah. Um, I think spatially, I, you know, I, I think about, um, I, I think about things as they are in the real world. Um, and so that's, that's the main, that's my main problem. It's not a criticism. So because that's actually the thing I want to say, like, I actually think coding as a medium works for a lot of people, but I don't mean to say it as, as a blanket criticism. It's just for me, um, not the right tool. I mostly agree with what you're saying. I think the nuance that, that I'm trying to point at is, um, is this point that Brad Victor makes in a lot of his essays, but in particular, uh, Kill Math, which I was reading recently. Uh, he says that the people who are good at symbolic reasoning or, and that applies to math or to programming, are the people who are able to take the symbols and interpret them into this high-resolution picture in their head. Um, so it, the difference isn't that you think in pictures and programmers don't. It's that programmers can turn the symbols into pictures. Like, like I, just speaking for myself, I'm able to turn the code into a higher-level picture in my head. And it took me a lot of time to get to a place where I could do that. Um, so what I would say is, if we were able to make tools that, that, you know, visualized it in a picture, and I'm using the word picture, I think broadly, it doesn't have to actually be a picture, uh, like it's something that's more visual, then I would have to do less work. I would, well, first of all, I wouldn't have to, to learn how to do it in the first place. And then even as a programmer day to day, I would have to do less work. And then someone like you um, wouldn't, you know, you could just immediately go to the visualization. So that, that's kind of, and, and to 100%. give you- 100%. Yeah, and to give you a, a specific example, there's um, one of my favorite um, uh, tools in, in, in that particular space is um, this, uh, there's this, this uh, programming language, this JavaScript framework that's kind of like React.js. It's called Cycle.js. And um, they actually parse code, just regular, like JavaScript code written in this framework into a diagram with arrows. And then when you click on different buttons in your app, you can see the data flowing through the diagram. So with one glance, you can immediately see how how a user interface is built up, and and I think that's that's pretty powerful. But it doesn't go the other direction. You can't like move the nodes in the graph and have it have it come back together. So the, let me add a couple of things there. I, I hear you on the point that uh, programmers should train themselves to visualize what their code is doing, but that also comes, and I don't I don't think that is universally a bad thing though. I actually think with that skill comes a sort of efficiency and speed. Right, so if you do have the ability to do that, then the interface of code is actually it's like it's, it's like a race car, um, and and I think that, that that's that's sort of in the Engelbart spirit of building professional tools. I think there's a market for those the, for for those kinds of tools. I mean, I know like you know limited interacting with Git through the command line, it, it's more fun than using the the GitHub client the UI for it. Um, it, you feel like you're, you feel it's much faster. Um, and so I see the benefit there. I just don't think that's actually something for most people. The other thing I'd say is that 
not only is there the sort of visualization part, but um, for someone like me, for example, I don't, you know, like if we look at a programming language, there are sort of abstractions of how the machine works. Yeah. You know, when you start with something like assembly and then abstract out and, you know, to go to something like JavaScript or Swift in our case, you know, these are, um, these are abstractions that are quite developed, but they're still in the mold of how the machine works. And so you're sort of starting from the machine and building layers of abstraction uh, above that. And uh, we are not looking at, the, at it that way. We are starting from the human, and we're, uh, we're sort of um, we're bringing the human closer to the, what's possible with the machine. And so, uh, I, you know, we, I don't anticipate that we'll have an idea of a loop, for example, in our system. Uh, that, like, that is, that is something that um, I think a lot of, like, more visual programming languages might introduce because their function is to teach you how, how the computer works in a sense. And we're not actually interested in that. We want to allow the tool to be able to do things for you. And so if we could figure out a more human way of explaining what's happening there, even if we have to quote unquote rebrand it and and perhaps even limit its function, um, that's the route we're going to take. Yeah, I think that's um, exactly the right idea. Divor divorcing the um, interface to computers from the the way the way the computer actually works. That's yeah. That, that, that's like really the main problem with programming tools uh, or the main problem with, with programming languages that uh, they, they like they haven't been liberated from the minutia of how the hardware actually works. And we're so far, far away from that. Um, and I think that's that's why uh, Universe is such a beautiful program, because because you're, you're, you're coming from coming at it from a totally different perspective. And that's, I guess, kind of what I was getting at with the question. Like you're, you're coming from so outside the perspective of an engineer that that your like, thinking isn't really uh, bogged down by the metaphors that you know my brain is trapped in even even um, when I try and get out. Look, I think we're also very good as people. We're really good optimizers. So if we start at a place, we'll find the the local maximum. Um, and I think if you start from a traditional programming language, even if you get to like the local maximum of usability. I think that you're leaving a lot on the table um, and that there's actually a global maximum of usability that's, that, that sort of in a, in a, in a, that starts in a point that's sort of disjoint from the, the lineage of, uh, of, of, sort of traditional programming. Yeah, well, I like that visual because uh, in, in, in like practice, in order to find that new local maxima, you might have to start at a place which is lower than the, than the local maxima that programming is already at, and then like slowly over time, climb back up a different hill, which is the peak of which is higher than, than, the, than the local maxima peak. Exactly. Uh, yeah, okay. So um, anyways, a, a lot of abstract conversation. I love it. Uh, I want to get, get a little more sure. concrete so, um, so um, uh, people can get a sense of, of what we're talking about. Um, so at the, the last Future of Programming meeting, you described different phases of your company. So could you walk yeah. us through the early days and, and through your various pivots? Yeah. So I actually, I didn't even, I didn't even tell you this part uh, last time, but um, this dream really started at my first company. 
And my first company, we made a product that um, was sort of like a website for your class if you were in college. So it was a place that you'd go to check your grades, download the files for homework, see the schedule, interact with your colleagues, etc. At some point, we I became really interested in what the future of educational media looked like. Um, and I specifically became interested in what the future of educational media on a phone looked like because it was clear that the phone was beginning, going to become the primary computer in our lives. And as I went down that path, um, I realized that some of the ideas I was having were much larger than, um, than just for educational use, but rather that uh, we could build sort of general purpose creation tools. I became really interested in that. Um, it didn't end up making sense to pursue that within my first company, Lore, but uh, after we'd sold it, I became obsessed with this mission. And I discovered um, Apple's HyperCard, which I think is probably familiar to this audience, but a relatively obscure product uh, for most people. So qu and, question for um, you, just to jump in there. Did you ever actually play with HyperCard? Because I've never had, everyone talks about it, but I've never played with it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I was able to get, at the time, uh, I was able to get an emulator so I could run it on my Mac. Oh, um, very and I cool. used it extensively. Can you t yeah, tell I us a bit? Yeah, tell me a bit about, I, I've, I've only heard about it in abstractions. Can you be like, can you give us some like specific examples about what made you fall in love? Yeah. Okay. So you run Mac OS 7 in an emulator and it's this tiny screen running on my big, huge retina screen. And, um, Basically, the way it works is that uh, you create a new stack of cards, and a card is a landscape-oriented blank canvas that you could then put uh, elements on. And an element could be text. It could be a graphical element, like a shape. Um, it's all black and white, by the way. And you could drag these elements around on the screen. And so you could think about it as starting as like a PowerPoint-like interface or keynote-like interface. Uh, so you have blank canvas adding elements to it. Now, let's keep in mind that this launched in, I believe, 1987, um, and it was intended to be sort of software sister to the Mac hardware. Um, and it was designed by one of the lead engineers and designers on the Mac OS, Bill Atkinson. And, um, and so you place these elements on the screen, sort of just like a graphical authoring environment. But what was really cool is that you could then double-click on any element, and you could give that element behavior. And you give behavior by giving it, sort of attaching some code to it. And the code uh, was written in a language called HyperTalk, which they wrote for HyperCard and was very English-like. Um, and so someone like me could totally understand it and write it. Um, and, and, and you could do all kinds of cool stuff with it. Like you could, I remember one of the functions, you could have it like dial a phone number. So you could like make a keypad for a phone. Um, which I thought was really cool. And but the other thing about HyperCard was that um, you weren't just making a single canvas, you were making a stack of these cards. And so you could uh, link one card to another card. So if you tap, you created a button on one card, you could link it to another card. And, um, and so it actually introduced the idea of hyperlinking, uh, which then went on to... Uh, influenced Tim Berners-Lee, who invented the web. Um, oh, interesting. So but, I didn't realize that, that, that that's where LinkedIn came from. Yeah, I mean, I'm sure there were other experiments and similar ideas at the time. Um, but if, when you look at it retroactively, the sequence seems to be that Atkinson invented linking 
but it was all local, so you can only link to a to a card within your stack. Um, mm-hmm. And and then Tim Berners Lee took that idea and married it with the internet, and uh, in that you could link to any document on the internet, which totally changed the use case, right? Like the network itself, you needed hyperlinking and the network for it to be interesting. Um, but anyway, HyperCard, uh, it was a medium that was broad enough that you could make anything from a, um, a piece of art to a calendar application. Um, and you could use the stack, like the index of cards, almost as a database. So it was just this remarkably versatile tool. And one specific detail I really loved was that um, in the settings for the app, you could actually choose the level, the sort of the level of difficulty. And there are five levels, and the first level is view only, so no editing. And you say, why would you want that? Well, because a lot of people made their apps and their content in HyperCard. So in the 80s, if you like bought a, a, a video game, it might come in HyperCard format. You, you'd buy it on a floppy disk, and then you'd put it in your Mac, and it, it, it may it may run on HyperCard. Um, and so that was the base level. Then you had, um, I don't know, the, I don't remember the exact sequence, but you could first create graphical elements, then you could create links and buttons, and then you could add the, the, the fifth level of scripting. Um, but there were a couple things I loved about that. First is that as a designer of software, that's how I think about great software. It, it has a gradient. So it doesn't have a low ceiling. It has sort of a, a low step and a high ceiling, right? Like, uh, it's really easy to get started, but it also allows you to go wherever you want to go. I think you, tools either have really open-ended possibilities, but they're really intimidating, or they're really simple uh, and just simplistic. They don't they don't allow you to do anything more than that. And so, um, what what I liked about it at first was that it has articulated its design um, th- through this. Like, it was clearly designed for that leveling up. Um, I realize, though, that like that making that a user toggle um, sort of defeats the purpose. I think they probably did it for like educational environments because Macs are really popular in schools. But you know, it would be much more interesting if the software itself uh, allowed you to level up when when you were ready or when you wanted to, instead of like having to go configure it as a parental control kind of thing. Um, in any case. When I saw HyperCard for the first time, it felt like, aha, like, this is it. This is an environment that I could use to make stuff online. Um, and that, well, HyperCard didn't really work because it was pre-web. It was, pre, uh, it was pre-network. So if you made something and you wanted to share it, you had to put it on a disk, which just really limited its, its appeal. And so it became nothing more than a cult classic. But um, I started to think, oh, man, if we paired this idea of HyperCard um, with the iPhone, then we could sort of unleash a bonanza of creativity. Um, That HyperCard was 30 years ahead of its time, and that if we brought it back um, for – we brought it back for the first computer that was really personal, then it would open up – uh, these frontiers. Um, so anyway, 
became obsessed with this product and actually throughout this exploration I, I moved to the Bay Area. I actually reached out to Bill Atkinson um, who's nice enough to um, invite me to his home. Got to go to his house for lunch um, and he, uh, he told me about his dream at the time, what led to HypoCard, uh, which was actually an LSD trip. Um, wow. And uh, yeah, uh, I guess, you know, <laughs> uh, sometimes good things come out of them. But, uh, um, you know, he walked me through the vision and I just left super inspired. And at the time, you know, I'm an entrepreneur. I love business. Uh, I had a bunch of ideas that I was thinking about. This one felt the most nebulous, the most hard to sort of um, fathom and sort of um, make concrete, but it also felt like I couldn't not do it. And so I decided to pursue it, um, and I called one of our previous investors, a guy named David Tish from my, my first company. And David had actually programmed with HyperCarter, how he learned to program. Uh, and he got it immediately, even though like most people had no idea what the hell he was talking about. Um, and David wrote check without us even having um, a product or anything. And that led me to start experimenting. Um, and so I'll give you like an abbreviated uh, a sort of overview of the history of the company. I started the company over about three and a half years ago. For the first two and a half years, we were working on a different product from what we're working on now. The first product was um, all within the same umbrella of empowering everybody to create the internet. Um, you can think about the first product as, as, as us wanting to create a new web entirely. What I mean by new web is a new artifact. Instead of a web page, you'd have what we called a verse. And um, you'd have a new way of creating these verses, a new editor um, for doing that. So you could replace a text editor like you do for a web page with this new verse editor. And these verses would be shared not on the web, but they'd be shared in this new network called Universe. And, and so we're sort of building this little parallel uh, network. And the reason why we wanted to do that was because we felt like uh, we felt like the web wasn't ideal in many ways. And apps in their state at the time, remember this is 2014, um, felt also not like the right democratic medium. And so when I started the company, we kicked off a design exploration for what this new web could look like. Um, and that actually led to three unique user interfaces, um, specifically around the creation tool itself. The first user interface was very similar to HyperCard. It was a freeform canvas. And you could put elements on that canvas, and you could even program those elements. So, for example, you could put a square on the screen, and you can say, when this square is tapped, then you know move across the screen. And we built some really cool UI, and I can share a video of what this looked like. Um, we built some breakthrough UI for it. Um, at the end of the day, after about nine months of work, so a long time, uh, it fought. It didn't work. Um, we started putting it in front of people and they really just didn't get it and we realized that we'd been so deep in our hole, like so deep in it that what felt like second nature to us was actually a complete fabrication of reality. Like we had built our own little world and it made sense to us because we made it but we lost sight of actually 
what makes sense to, to someone who doesn't have that context. Um, and so we actually abandoned that. Uh, we took the learnings and we went the opposite way. We said instead of, instead of it being a freeform canvas, we're going to double down on this whole idea of cards and we're going to make these cards very structured. So you'll have three types of cards you could pick from. You have an image card, a text card, and you have a card with images uh, with an image and text. That's it. But what was interesting about these cards is that you could link them to each other. And so this one we started testing much sooner than it was, I think, like a month into it we started testing. And that one started getting, like, working, but it wasn't interesting. Uh, ultimately, like, it was it was sort of like text pages, and, you know, with, with single graphics and just we, you know, we started the company because we wanted this open-ended environment, and this was not that. And so I got, I started designing, I started, it actually started as initially a new type of card, um, but I wanted to create like a card type that was uh, easy enough, as easy as these sort of previous cards, but was fundamentally open-ended. And started thinking about the, the problem in a bit of an abstract way. And I said, like, one of the reasons why dealing with a blank canvas is too intimidating is because your possibility space is infinite. You know, technically, the, 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 the pixels on your phone are arranged in a grid, but the pixels are so small now that you can't discern them. And so the effect is that of paper. And a blank page is about the most intimidating thing you can do to get to someone, especially a first-time creator. Um, as I said, how do we, how do we make this possibility space narrower? How do we effectively add some constraints? How do we reduce um, the decision space? And I, I sort of had this idea to um, take the pixel grid of the iPhone and uh, make it jumbo sized, magnify it like like enormously. I said, imagine if we divided the phone screen into a grid that was almost childlike. So we divide it into three columns and five rows, which would give you 15 squares that filled the iPhone's 16 by nine ratio screen. And I tried a bunch of different um, like uh, grid arrangements, you know, four by seven, etc. smaller, finer ones, uh, but three by five felt like the, the perfect Medium. It was just accessible enough, um, but but uh, but still, you know, enough control. And I said, what if in that grid um, you could draw on it? You could sort of take your finger and draw over the the unit, the cells in the grid, to create um, a block. And so the idea started unfolding. And I I, I sort of work in Sketch and 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 um, it started to get really interesting. The way it would work is you drag your finger over um, the cells on the grid, and then we bring up this block tray. You choose what you want. It would fly into that area that you selected, and then you can, you know, choose a picture or write some text. And it became very clear to me that this was sort of the interface we'd be searching for because it was really easy to use and really fun, actually but it was totally open-ended. It was a modular system, and I'm sort of a student of modular systems or maybe a sucker for them, um, uh, and I wanted to create something that was like this, um, that 
was sort of Lego-like in its simplicity and its openness, and it felt just perfect. Um, and so I just got really, really excited, and and um, we started prototyping, and it was it, it 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 felt like the interface that I'd been searching for since starting to think of these these things. So uh, with that, once we knew that, we then uh, we went back to the drawing board and decided that we were going to abandon the previous version of the product, which is this uh, defined type uh, card one. And instead, we were going to um, we were going to go with the grid. And uh, the grid was one part of it. The thing that you were creating was called a verse. So you can think of these verses as like little mini canvases that are interactive. So for example, you could make a little informational page. You could make a um, like a little uh, game actually, and uh, the elements on the uh, uh, that you put on the grid didn't just have um, visual media, but you could actually add what we call a script to it. And the script um, followed a format that was like uh, Mad Lib style. So you had a sentence that said, "When this block is tapped, um, which looks like a pill, it looks like a button." then do blink. And then we had a, a few options that you could choose. Um, like, for example, move um, three grid units up or uh, take me to another uh, verse. Um, and so that quickly became the most popular one, linking to other pages. But we started to introduce this idea of like making the screens not just easy to design, but also easy to program. Um, now, so that's just, so we've got the, the grid editor, the verse, and then we had this thing called universe, which was the place where you'd share these verses. And um, the first version of that looked similar to Instagram. So you'd have uh, people in, 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 sort of people in a network, and you could follow them, and you can get access to their verses. Um, and so that was the version that we shipped in August 2016, so a little bit over a year ago. And everyone saw, who saw it thought it was extremely cool. Uh, we got featured by Apple, but um, at the end of the day, most people didn't know what to do with it. They didn't know what it was for. Um, they thought it was nifty, but they never came back, and more importantly, they didn't really know uh, what to do with it. And so we started iterating on that, and we started finding our niche, and our niche ended up being sort of uh, art students, actually, the people who are mobile, mobile tech savvy, um, not necessarily technical, but curious about exploring new mediums. Um, which was awesome. Like we started seeing like an outpouring of creativity, but it was very small, and it started to become, in a different way, an exclusive community of creatives. Um, I also, at the time, started to think about what I really wanted to be building, um, and did I really want to be creating a social network? Did I want to be creating um, a place? Did I want to be designing something? where our success was dependent on how much time people spent in our little world. And I, and I started to doubt that. Um, I, I felt like our incentives were not necessarily aligned with the well-being of our users. Um, and that didn't feel great. Um, so in any case, in any case uh, after last year, um, 
after the new year, so coming into 2017, we realized that what we had wasn't working. We also had some team changes. Um, we sort of went from seven people to two people. Um, but for a lot of reasons, we realized that uh, the path that we were on was not going to continue to work and that at the, at the core of it was our product, product wasn't resonating um, and that we were actually failing at our core mission. The technology was cool. The user interface design was cool. But at a positioning level, it wasn't resonating. It didn't make sense. And so we were failing to communicate our value. Um, so we started to think about, we started to question the idea of versus existing exclusively in universe. Because that seemed to be the real problem. It's like these things are limited in value because to see them, you need to be in in this new world, like this new app, and you have to go download this app to do it. Um, and so we started to experiment with what if that wasn't the case? What if verses were visible on the web? And as we went down that route, we started to ask what if um, verses weren't just visible on the web, but what if verses were websites? Uh, what if instead of universe being a way to create a verse, it was the easiest way to make a website? The easiest way to make a website from your phone in under a minute with a .com, a domain, hosting, all of that stuff abstracted away. Not just the easiest way to make a website, but an environment where uh, you could get started really simply, but the sky is actually the limit in terms of what you want to do with it because it's built on this open-ended grid. That started to become really interesting. We started prototyping with some of the technology for registering domains. Um, and realized that we could actually do a domain registration instantaneously from the app and that we could actually use Apple's in-app subscriptions to process them. And uh, yeah, So I think that's something I want to just pause there for a second because that's one of my favorite features of, Unison, of uh, Universe. That's just like nobody's done that before. It's 2017 and you're like the, the only person who's figured out how to make it so you can purchase a domain name with your fingerprint. It, like it, yeah. it's crazy. Yeah. It, there's a bunch of work there. And for us, you know, we charge for these domains to cover our costs. That is to us. That is a service. We're doing it because having your own custom domain is so cool. Um, and so we want that to be as easy as possible to do. And, and so we, what you know that's not a money maker for us but it's um it is it is a service it makes it, it makes the whole experience complete and i think we talked about this earlier but um you know with the first version of universe that we ended up shipping two months later in march it was very limited we 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 really shipped a very bare bones v1 and, and this is the, the new the, version that makes websites the, the new web yeah so uh we we ended up we ended up realizing that we were on to something with this new website builder approach, but we wanted to get it out as soon as possible because we wanted to really iterate it and learn in public uh, about what people wanted and needed. So the first version that we shipped was really simplistic. Like it, it was a fixed grid. You could only make one page sites. Um, there was, there were very few blocks that you could add to your site. It was just very limited. Um, and there was some big bugs, but, the thing that we wanted to make sure that we had was that even if it was small, what you could do, it was a complete loop. So, for example, you could go from not having a website to having a 
custom website of your own making and own design on the internet in less than one minute with a dot-com. That was really important to us. So we would cover everything from design to hosting to domain registration, etc., cetera, in, in, in an under a minute experience. And so we prioritized that as opposed to like, for example, really going deep on the grid at the expense of, for example, handling domains. So we launched that in March, and then uh, it immediately started working. And since then, we've um, we've been growing pretty pretty strongly, uh, and it's it's amazing uh, to see what people are making with it. Lots and lots of websites have been created. We've been growing at a very healthy clip, um, and we've been iterating the product rapidly. So we are over with the days of monolithic uh, app releases. We release on a weekly, bi-weekly basis. We're constantly adding uh, new features, constantly rethinking our user interface. We are having conversations with our customers on a daily basis. In fact, for up until just recently, I did every customer support um, <laughs> uh, chat with our users. And uh, we are we're using that as like input for our design process, but it's addictive once you go down this iterative route. Um, what's really cool is that when we first started working on this, we weren't sure if uh, there was gonna be a sort of limited appetite for what you people want to do creatively on their phone. Like we'd hoped that there would be an ambition to create things that were really interesting and big, but we weren't sure that the demand would be there. But what we've learned is that um, the overwhelming feedback for us is people want more. People want to do more with the universe. People want to be able to make more things. And that is super exciting. So we have a product queue that's just immense. And um, it's, it's something that we could continue to work on for a long time, which just excites us to our core. Um, and really think about how we can humanize the design creation, uh, development experience at every level. Uh, so we're still very, very early. Our product is still very small. Um, but we are uh, rapidly, rapidly inventing and iterating. Yeah. So it sounds like you're a real convert from the um, you know, waterfall development style to the more iterative development style. And, um, and, and that's, that's a, it's a very... And I think most listeners are familiar with both styles. And in modern times, mo you know, uh, most people are talking about the more iterative style. Um, I think like a, a good, an example of, of a company that doesn't do that, I guess, would be Apple that, you know, they release a phone at once every year. It's kind of, um, as opposed to releasing new phones constantly, like Tesla, for example, every new car that comes off the lot has maybe better technology than, than the car a few, you know, a, a few than, than a car that came off a lot a few weeks ago. Um, and so part of me, um, like clearly I see the benefit, the benefits of continuous, uh, rapid iteration like you're doing now. Um, but as someone who converted recently, clearly you thought there were benefits to the, to the, you know, spending time in your own universe for a little while, trying to figure out what people need, almost like the, um, like the, the, the Henry Ford, uh, you know, if I asked people what they want, they would have said faster horses. Um, like, like yeah. basically, if you're too iterative and you, and you listen to customers too much, you could be trapped in this local minima. So I'm curious how you reconcile that, um, you know, yeah. having a, a big vision. 
with um, with also you know iterating towards something customers want. So a few things. The first is that I think that projects have different phases, and that you can think about like the first phase of universe as being like a research phase, and that is broad. It's open ended. It's exploratory, um, and there's a lot of virtue in that. It allows you to be very creative and very inventive. Um, I think, so I, I, you're 100% right. I am a convert to this new way of building. Um, and the reason why I am is because I think it results in better work. And the reason why it results in better work is because uh, you, can, you put something out and you learn, and the feedback loop is just much tighter. Now, here's the thing, though. We listen to our users. We don't do what they say necessarily. So we interpret what they're saying. Our job as designers is to use that as input to figure out the best solution and to understand what the real problem is that people have. So it would be a mistake uh, for, for a company that's trying to do something interesting to just do what people tell them to do. If they're any good at what they do, they should be able to take that and understand the core of what those people want and then come up with the best solution for that thing. Um, and so that's, that, that, that's one thing I would really stress. But I also want to bring up two points or, or another point, which is that um, this is actually only newly possible with um, iOS apps. And so we are iOS, we're an iOS app. Um, it used to be that you know, submitting a new app on the App Store took two weeks for an approval. Now it takes a day. Um, and with iOS 11, when you submit a build, it doesn't wipe away your ratings and reviews. So there's no cost at all to adding an, an update to your release. And now at this point, most users have auto-update turned on, so they'll get an update immediately as soon as it goes out. So that those are enabling factors that make um, it possible to iteratively develop apps in a way that really you couldn't do it for the first six or so, seven or so years of the iOS platform, but that have been the case on the web for a long time. Um, so iOS development has become more like web development. It's still a ways away. The thing I'd say in terms of um, like a company like Apple uh, versus a company like Tesla, um, I think that the orientation is fundamentally a hardware versus software orientation. Hardware doesn't work. Um, in this fashion, doesn't work iteratively. It work, you know, you have to get it right. You have one shot, and it needs to be perfect. You can't change it once you've shipped it. Software, on the other hand, you can change. And I tend to think that the world is is going to look more and more like software uh, in the future, and that if you have a choice between an iterative approach and a non-iterative approach, and the, the sort of underlying technology affords iteration, that's always going to win. It's just a matter of whether the medium itself allows for an iterative process. And hardware to date just doesn't. So with Tesla's, what's interesting is that they're shipping cars, which they can't change post facto, but they can change the software that the cars run. Now, I think you're going to start to see hardware companies that incorporate the iterative mindset because they're started by people, by founders who have a software experience. Because once you develop software iteratively, it's hard to do anything differently. Like, I think movies are going to be made iteratively. I think that, you know, what we typically think of as artwork is going to be made differently. Music, like, and we're starting to see this actually happen. Like, look at Kanye West's last album, Life of Pablo. 
Like he started changing that after he released it. That's going to continue to happen in everything, like whether that's a building in the physical world or anything else. And so my, my, my sort of thought is that if it can be software, it will be software. And if it can be software, it will be iterative. That, I definitely resonate with that. I, like in my own personal work, for example, I have so much trouble declaring like anything that I do done because I know that I just want to make, like for example, I have a, a programming language platform that I, I put out and there's, there's definitely, my dad asks me, okay, so when is it done? Like, well, what do you mean when is it done? Like, I'm just going to keep making it better and better. And yet, like when I write like an essay, for example, you know, I'm supposed to make sure that like that's done. Why don't I just keep making that better and better? I, I, I'm totally with you that this mentality of continuous improvement for forever will permeate all the things that we do over time. Yeah. Now, I think that it requires us to be more disciplined as creators because sometimes a thing requires more in-depth invention and you really do have to go out into left field. I just think we have to know when to use which tool. But I think generally the iterative approach, because it's new relatively, is massively underutilized compared to the other approach. Most things are built in these sort of monolithic ways. And so I think heuristically we're going to move much more towards the iterative approach. But once we have that capability, there are projects that require um, deep thought and, and, and time. And I'd also say that there are some projects that also deserve an ending. Not everything uh, should live on forever, and that's just fine. But I think that's going to become our choice instead of um, – uh, determined by physics, for example. You, you, you see what I'm saying? Of course, yeah. So like back in the days, you would have to finish a book because, you know, they have to like pr like mass produce something because like they're physical books or like or like a, exactly. a, a video game. You have to like print it onto discs. <laughs> it needs to, it's, you need to stop working on it. Yes. Um, so um, uh, I, I really loved walking uh, you walking us through the different pivots of the company. Um, I, part, partially because uh, a lot of the, the moves you made feel like moves that I've made in the past and I'm sure I'm going to make in the future. In, in particular, um, what really resonated with me is um, how obvious you know, your, your current iteration is, um, how obvious it feels in, in now in retrospect. Like, you know, it's, it's a website builder for your phone. Um, I think like... I, like Squarespace on your phone or, or like a mobile first Squarespace is like a very quick way to describe it. So given that it, it feels so obvious now, do you ever look back on it and think like, how did I miss this? Or because I, I personally do this all the time. I'm constantly coming up with messaging for my products. It makes sense in my head. That doesn't make sense to anybody. And it's only after a long period of time where my users are like, nope, that's not what it is. It's this other thing. Finally, I'm like, oh, okay, you're right. Um, so I don't know if you could tease out... Um, yeah. Like, and, and like, for example, if you were giving advice to someone else, like, like me, for example, I'm working on a project, the messaging doesn't resonate with anyone. Like, like what advice would you give to, to kind of find messaging yeah. that resonates faster? Yeah, definitely. So a couple of thoughts. First is I do look back somewhat frustratingly at the first two and a half years of this journey, not just messaging wise, but um, like clarity in general, you know, we, we phone call wasted a lot of time. Um, but uh, I think that's sort of, you know, it, hindsight is twenty twenty, and, you, you know, that, that's sometimes a necessary part of the journey. Um, and that, uh, 
things that are obvious. I mean, it's the weirdest thing because, like, when the grid when I came up with the grid interface, it felt like I thought of it before. It felt so familiar, but I'd never I'd never done it. Like, it, it felt like it was sitting there the whole time. And then when we did the website builder repositioning, it felt the same way. It almost like it's very hard to describe. It almost felt like I discounted it as a possibility because it was so obvious. Mm. And I had to give myself permission to go there. Um, but I think that's the nature of good ideas. They're, they're just, they're, they are so obvious and that's misleading. And I think that we need to like train ourselves to actually um, take that obviousness, not as um, like a repellent, but actually a magnet. That's a good thing. That means there's something there. Like we always hear this idea of like, um, you know, simplicity being this virtue and obviousness being good. I think it's different in practice. Um, and so just being familiar, like, I think as creators, we tend to want to do original things. And so there's an aversion to, to, to glomming on to any existing concept or metaphor. And I think we got to fight against that. The other thing I'll say in terms of messaging specifically is that, um, I think one of the problems that all creators face, and especially product makers, and, and I, I'm, I'm guilty of this, is sort of an egocentricity. Like, we look at the world, um, and we think that people care as much about us and the things that we build as we do. But the truth is, that's not true at all. People have their own lives that they care about, uh, and more often than not, you are not a part of that, nor is your product. And... Um, and so I think that we are tempted to, because we really care about this stuff, uh, think about it in really grandiose terms. Um, and, and, um, and at the expense of explaining in a way that's really uh, obvious, really prosaic, really pedestrian. And what I've come to realize is that if you're trying to do anything really interesting or new, what you want to actually do is wrap it in the most familiar thing you can, the most familiar form, the most familiar um, terminology. Because if you're able to make something really new and package it up in a familiar way, then you've done like something incredible. You've introduced a new thing um, without people even really knowing it. Uh, because it's really hard. It's really damn hard to, to get to get something new into the world to be adopted. So you want to use like every unfair advantage that you could think of to, 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 to bring something into the culture. Um, and so for us, we had become enamored with this idea of creating our own web um, that, that had the values that we liked and all this stuff. Um, and so we created, you know, this notion of a verse and, it, you know, it sort of, it was like, 100% of what we'd want, but we realized that actually if we say, actually, you're making a website, and Universe is, is a mobile-first website builder, we get, like, instantaneously, someone understands, like, exactly what we're doing. You know, no one understood what we were doing before. Like, no one had, any, my mom couldn't understand what I was doing. Like, <laughs> and as soon as it said it's a way to make a website on your phone, she got it. <laughs> and... Oh, that didn't capture this whole idea about like hypercard and creating a democratic web. It didn't matter because like she gets it now, yeah. right? And I think you need to create like um, an interface, so to speak, uh, from a messaging perspective that is super, super familiar. Um, 
and 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 so I don't know. There's this. And I don't know if you you've heard of this, but there's an industrial designer. Um, he uh, hold on, let me pull it up. Um, uh, so there was an industrial designer named uh, Raymond Lowy. Uh, he was at the time like he was, he died in 1986. Was born in 1893. He was um, like the most famous. He was a Johnny Ive of the the 50s. Uh, so he designed planes and he like designed Air Force One and um, and like trains and all kinds of stuff. And he had this principle and he called it Maya M A Y A most advanced yet acceptable, in which he said you want to um, wrap. Uh, new technology into familiar packages, um, and and you, so you want to make the new familiar, and you want to make the familiar new, right? So if you're making a bag of potato chips, you want to make that bag of potato chips seem like seem like they're from outer space, like they're so cool and new. And if you're making a rocket ship, you want to make that seem like a bag of potato chips, <laughs> right? Like. So that's sort of the idea. Yeah, well, I, I to me, that almost feels similar to uh, the idea of the zone of proximal development for a child, but more for like society. So there's like, you, right. you want to just go a little bit beyond the familiar for people because uh, that's all that people can understand, just like the tiniest bit beyond. Right. Fascinating. Exactly. Yeah, it, it definitely, you know, in reflecting on, uh, your your transition onto my own work as as we talked the last time you and I talked uh, you you were um, giving me the advice that um, that I think you you, you uh, I, I'm projecting now but I, that I almost feel like you wish you could have given yourself you know two and a half years ago which is like kind of kind of get stuff out there uh, build build real products talk to real customers as opposed to staying in in this abstract land of of um, yeah, of, of vision. So um, yeah, it, it's it's uh, inspiring yeah, to he hear how much more success you've had. It, like I I feel the, the 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 visceral upward spiral that you've like landed yourself on, and like this incredibly long backlog of products that customers like really really want to use. That's if if it, like I, I it feels vibrate like you know the vibrations I can feel it. So it's empowering. So like. You know, thanks. And and we're still like really like I said at the foot of the mountain and we have a long way to go. But uh, But it feels like a, know, like an optimization uh, problem. Like you, you feel like you're on a mountain and like you take a step and you're like, Yep, this was higher than I was a second ago. Like it, it feels like you're climbing as opposed to just walking on flat ground. That is correct. Um, one thing I'll add though is that look, I do think there's value in vision. Um, and and so I want to make that clear, like knowing what you care about, knowing your values, um, knowing your, where you want to go is really important. It's, you know, the, that's the stuff that makes changes the world. Um, I just think that it needs to be in balance with doing, um, and that, uh, a lot of the vision stuff is actually, doesn't need to be that specific. It could be more of a general orientation. That's why I like to think about like values. Um, uh, as opposed to like a specific vision per se. Um, but I actually think like this, this essential planning, like a thesis is not 
the way that actually things change in the world. I think in academia that suffices, but if you actually want to instantiate change in the world, you have to engage with the world. Mm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's that's my two cents. Yeah, yeah. Well, it, when you when you engage the the metaphor of like the central planner, you know, it brings me to like the, the vision of Robert Moses. The um, it's, yeah, exactly. It's Robert Moses versus Jacob, Jane Jacob. Yeah, uh, and that that's like a whole a whole separate debate. Um, fascinating. Sometimes you need a. By the way, sometimes you need a Moses character, right? Like if people like to give Moses a hard time. Like, and I definitely would choose Jane over him, but, um, you know, like New York, I think there were some crazy amount of bridges that he built. Like, oh yeah. And the, the city's better for them. So like, you, you know, it's not one, of, it's not just one or the other. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it, part of, um, I, I think to, to kind of d- dig deeper into why I'm, I'm in this, in my current phase of, of vision and, and principles and, and all that kind of stuff now is is because the more i read brett victor and alan Kay, so or, or, you know my first blush at this was i would, I, re- I watched a few of their essays and was like wow this is inspirational let me go build some stuff and and i built a bunch of stuff and i and i felt like it i wasn't that excited about it so i went back and read my original inspirations and the, and the more i read them uh, and listened to them the more they like convinced me uh, how important it was to really like know your stuff like a quote that to me like epitomizes it is they say that, that like the internet, for example, uh, like the core technologies of the internet, like the plumbing stuff, were designed by like real experts. But then the web itself, I, I, uh, like HTML, CSS, and JavaScript, like the, the work that Netscape did, and the work that people at Microsoft, uh, Internet Explorer, like that was more like amateurs that were just kind of hacking it together. Um, yep. And and I think like um, Alan Kay has a lot of regret for his ideas that were kind of unfinished and hacked together that like spread so rapidly throughout, throughout the, uh, the world. He kind of wishes that he didn't, he didn't build them or he didn't release the code. Uh, he kind of like perfected it more before he released it. So I, I feel like I'm almost infected by that, that reluctance that, you know, to, to, to make things worse, uh, to, to like, it, se- it seems like Brett and Alan, like they feel like the worst possible thing you could do is design something the worst is better thing like that design something that's good enough to spread like wildfire and but but you know terrible enough to be worse than if you hadn't created it in the first place so um i'm not arguing for shipping bad stuff though that's my, my like i just want to be clear i i am of the less but better camp um i'm just saying that it shouldn't be complete uh and that that i don't think things are I, I, you know, look, there are certain projects where you're shipping it out into the world and it's never going to change, and so you want it to be finished, so to speak. But my point is that I think reducing scope um, such that the thing is as small as it needs to be, um, but high quality, and not just high quality, representative of your values, um, is critical. Yeah, it, it, well, and it's it's so clear how, how now that you have this mandate to make... Uh the easiest experience of building webs, the, the making the, the experience of building a website as easy as possible. It's, it's like so clear that like, I know where you're headed. I can communicate to others where you're headed. You can communicate. It's like very, very obvious. So um, yeah, that's the power yeah. of scope. So you, you, you've totally sold me on that. Um, so anyways, uh, let's see, I, I have one or two more questions for you. So I'd be curious to hear about what's on the horizon for universe now. What's like the next target or milestone 
or like how, you know how how do you conceive of the next twelve months or or so? How do you think about the future? Yeah, a uh, couple things. So uh, we are continuing to iterate the the product. Um, we continue to allow you to make more powerful sites and uh, more beautiful sites. Um, so sites that do more things and sites that look better. Now, right now, sites of the universe are getting to the point where they're, they're actually pretty competitive with what you could do with a desktop builder um, or, you know, uh, come up with on your own. Um, but I want to get to a point where you can do things with universe that you can't do with other tools. And you can't do them with other tools because they're not mobile first and universe is. Mm. Um, so I want to really lean, in, lean into the things that mobile is great at, like dealing with your finger as an input mechanism. Mm. Um, and I think we can sort of help usher in a new wave of uh, web design that, um, that, that is, is fundamentally of, of the phone um, and, not, and not bound by the keyboard and mouse as an mm. input. Um, so, so you can expect to see our sites getting better. Um, and, 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 and sort of, that, that's one thing. Uh, the second thing there is um, specifically around commerce. Uh, so a lot of people use Universe for their businesses. Uh, we handle these well, but we don't allow you to sell things or do anything really related to growing your business. That will change. Um, we'll support that. And um, we'll start to do a lot of the things like being able to, to manage your site in a way that um, right now it's very simplistic. You have one site, you, can, you can't even change the title of it on the web, like the metadata. Um, so we're going to allow you to do stuff like that and make it easier to make sites that have multiple pages and, and things like that. But really leaning into like how you make sites that are um, more beautiful, more interesting, more powerful. Um, and expanding the portfolio of tools there. The other thing that we're really interested in is um, opening up the universe block platform. So right now we offer, I think, seven blocks. Uh, so it's like video, map, text, um, and each block has its own palette. So if you're in a text block, then you have control over the font and the size and the positioning of the text and the color and things like that. Um, if you're in the map block, you can choose a style of map or the address, things like that. Um, we recently introduced a code block, which is sort of an escape hatch for hackers. So you can go and write your own block, um, and it will render as a web view within a block. And it's really cool, because it opens up what you could do with Universe. And so you could embed stuff, but you could also just write a, you can write a, ver uh, a block from scratch. Um, and we actually made a, which I can link to, we made a, um, a tool, uh, a desktop tool that allows you to write uh, blocks in HTML and in JavaScript and actually see how they uh, how they render uh, in our grid. Um, so it's a GitHub project. Uh, I'll share it. But long term, we want um, anybody to be able to make native blocks, which is to say that imagine you're a developer and you want to create a let's say a GitHub block. So you could wire up the GitHub API, create uh, a visual representation of what you want the blog to do. So let's say display the five most recent uh, you know, projects that you've contributed to, 
and then for the user, uh, the, the, the creator of the site, they would just, in a native way, enter their GitHub username, and it would pull, you know, would sort of then inject that into your code. Um, and so we want to um, open up the, the creation tool itself to other developers. And, you know, the code block is a first step there, and if people are interested, they can go check that out and start uh, writing blocks against that. They can actually even submit their code to us, and we will, if it's good, approve it, and then any other user on the platform can use that code. Long term, the goal is not for the code to be the interface, but rather for um, for for us to build out this more uh, native platform. So, those are some of the areas that we're focused on. We're also focused on growth, um, on getting in front of more people, and on allowing people to um, to get their site in front of more people. Because um, people make something awesome, they want it. They want an audience. Yeah, totally. I imagine analytics. As, as we've talked about, is is like probably one of the biggest requests you get. Yeah. Um, yeah, and when, when you were talking about uh, enabling commerce, I was almost thinking like uh, Squarespace also allows commerce, but um, I was thinking that like you could almost be a mobile for Shopify. And I'm like imagining some designer um, who instead of want, wanting to sell their things on Etsy, um, they could just you know take pictures on their phone, apply filters, and then make and then just put prices on them and. And then just sell things uh, all without leaving their phone. They don't even need a, a computer. That, that's like very futuristic. To have a whole business that you run from your, your cell phone, it's crazy. Yeah, I also say it's already happening. It's just that the tools haven't caught yeah. up. Um, we, that's why we, I mean, we, one of our top requests is commerce. Um, and the other thing I'm going to say is like, one of the things that we realized is that, you know, the website builder space is very crowded. There are Squarespace, there's Wix, there's Weebly, there's Strikingly, there's all of these tools. Um, and it's a very big business now, you know, like Wix is a publicly traded three and a half billion dollar company. Uh, but there are virtually no companies that started on mobile. Now, th that's a nuanced point. Like Weebly, for example, has a mobile app. But it's a derivative of their desktop app. So it's moored in the conventions and the paradigms yeah. of desktop. We're the only ones who started on the phone, and that gives us a different perspective. So that same lens applies to commerce. Shopify has a mobile app. Uh, we look at it as starting with a mobile app, and, and that you know that sort of reduces the scope. To totally. Start. Yeah, and I, I think it's it's pretty clear when you use your app that it that it was built for the mobile phone and it was built to build mobile websites. So it, I, I think that, that comes across through the design. Um, you don't even have to tell users like, you know, by the way, we, we, we were on, on the phone first. It's like, it's just, it's clear because the scope is reduced and, and this is your entire focus. So you're able to make a really high quality product. I was emailing with someone who used to work at Squarespace, who was curious about their mobile efforts. And they, they told me that, um, you know, they tried a, 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 an app that allowed you to make like a cover page for your eventual real quote-unquote website. And it, it, for them, was really like a lead generation tool so they could drive download, like could drive sign-ups for their, their main product, um, but sort of target people on a phone. And it didn't work. And, and he had said the reason why it didn't work was because at some point, you know, if you want to make a change to your site, it's quote-unquote easier to just open your laptop and yeah. make a change. Yeah, that makes sense. And, um, and, you know, look, 
that makes sense if you're like. Well, what I'm here. saying is it makes sense given but, that their mobile interface was so bad that like it, given that, that their interface was built for desktop, like, you know, people just wanted to use the desktop interface because it was the better one. Exactly. And, and, but, but the orientation is a desktop first orientation. And that is sort of missing the point. The point is that um, the op, doing it on your, on your computer is the last thing that most of our customers would think of yeah, wanting to do. Totally. Um, so here, I have one last question for you. I think a lot of people in this world of building the future of, you know, of uh, human computer interactions are concerned about, like, including myself, are concerned about the long-term financial sustainability of our work. So I know that you raised money and now you are making some amount of money from your customers through um, various services you charge for. So I'd be curious to hear about uh, how you think about that. Um, is it are, are, like, are you thinking about continuing to raise uh, VC money? Are you um, trying, are you focused on revenue in the short term? How do you think about that? Yeah. So we are VC backed currently um, and will likely to continue on that trajectory. With that said, our business model is subscription based. And so, you know, we will offer different pro products. Um, for, so right now to create a site is free, but you can subscribe to a custom domain and we're adding an additional subscription today actually. And we'll continue to roll out new subscriptions that over time will um, get us to a place where we're, we're sustainable from a cash position. The, the big point there though is that we're building a business and a, a business model that is aligned with our customers. So we, um, you know, we make money when our customers are happy um, and we are not at odds with them. So, for example, like I was saying earlier about when we were building a social network, that felt started to feel bad because really our incentives as a company were not aligned with our users. Uh, right now, we're really aligned. And companies like Wix and Squarespace have demonstrated that you can build a very, very large business with this model um, in our space. So that's really promising. And the thing I want to say is that VC, there are bad actors. I've had my share of bad experiences. But VC is not categorically... Um, it doesn't have a, a moral stance yeah. categorically. It's not bad or good. Of course. It's a tool. Um, it's a tool like any technology. And it's, it's really good at allowing you to swing big and do exciting stuff and, um, and start a high-growth business. And these are all amazing things. They're amazing innovations. And what I would say is that that's more insidious, that's more problematic is people cho choosing business models that are at odds with the people who they serve. Now, VCs will often encourage or be supportive of that because, again, it's amoral. Um, and I think that's the thing to watch out for. But this is often within your control. It's, I think we don't often think about a company's business model when we, we think about its, its role in the world, and I think that's, that's, that's wrong. I think that we need to put as much thought and care into the business model as we do into its design, for example, its, its user interface, its technology. Yeah, um, that totally makes sense. I, I think the, from that perspective, the, the, v, the VC tool seems like you're using it right. Yeah, like, I mean, we'll see. And we'll, I'll, I'll tell you this, we're not in a position right now where we're cash flow positive. 
Um, so we're not profitable yet, and we have to get to that point. Um, but, you know, I'm confident that if we continue to do a good job, we will be in a place that's sustainable, which is cool, right? We're, we're properly incentivized as entrepreneurs, right? And too often it's the case that to actually be financially successful, you have to do things that are not in the best interest of your users. Like I think Facebook, for example, is a very high quality um, sort of executing machine, but I would argue that more often than not, their incentives are um, at odds with what's good for their users. And the more successful they are, the worse off in some ways their users are. And that's just bad. I, like, I don't think that is a good thing. And I don't think that, like, we don't, we don't really need more of those in the world. Like, I think it's up to us to use, like, I think if you're an idealist, uh, it's really important to figure out how to create a real-world vehicle or structure that um, can, over time, bring positive change into the world. Um, and I think the best way to do that is to design a business that um, that has the potential to, uh, to, 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 to be successful when its customers and users are successful. Um, yeah, so. I think that's um, very, very noble of you. I, and, and, I, and I like the distinction that it isn't venture capital that makes that, that is immoral. It's, it's, the, it's that sometimes um, it, it's often that I think it's that people conflate those things because venture capitalism, because people often use um, raising VC money um, to build a high growth, uh, free viral product that doesn't earn revenue for a long time. And then eventually they cash in on, on the, the attention of their users um, to advertisers sometime down the line. So VC is, is used to defer revenue un, until you're able to cash in the, the attention in, in this attention economy, which I think you're correctly pointing out as being immoral because people are stealing people's attention through these um, very like uh, nefarious mind hacking kind of notifications, uh, push notifications. Um, yeah, isn't good for people. So, um, but, but yes, you, uh, on the other hand, are using uh, venture capital dollars to do really amazing fundamental user interface research, um, and and then once you've figured all of these these key things out, you're um, you're now aligning your, your incentives correctly, where your user and your customer are the same person, and they and and they, they pay you when they're when they're happy, as opposed to selling the eyeballs of one person to uh, to the um, the use of, of another person. Yeah, look, I think we have a real challenge, though. I don't want to. Like we're not there. We're not. We're not there yet. Like we're not financially sustainable, and that if we're going to be around for a long time, has to change. So this is a challenge. But um, you know, I think part of like starting a values-driven company is is sort of not wavering on that. Like I think one of the things I've learned is how important the, the business model is. It's, it really matters. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, anyways, uh, on behalf of, of all of us, I want to thank you for, for starting a, a values-driven company like this. And, uh, and thanks for the, um, the uh, noble task of trying to find this, this uh, global maxima in terms of uh, human-computer interfaces. I, I think we'll all be better for it. Thanks. I mean, uh, we need, we're, you know, we're going to need a lot of help. So I appreciate any ideas people have. They want to 
they check out the product, if you guys check out the product and, and you have some suggestions, you can email me, joseph at onuniverse.com. I would love to hear your feedback. Um, and, and uh, like, again, like I said, we are just getting started here. Cool. Yeah. Uh, I'm, I'm excited to see what day two and day three looks like. It's a, uh, it's a, it's a very um, promising beginning. So hopefully, maybe I'll have you back on here in, in a bit and we'll, we'll, get, we'll get to hear the update.